Uh, before we pray, just a quick reminder that what we're doing this morning and what we seek to do every Lord's Day morning is not our idea. So this idea of gathering up on the Lord's Day is, uh, this is God's idea. This is from His Word. Uh, this is Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And then what, even what we do on the Lord's Day, not our idea. It's not a Grace Community Church thing. This is from the Lord. This idea of expository preaching, preaching God's Word. 1 Timothy 4.13, it says, uh, to be t- Paul tells Timothy to be given to the public reading of the Word and to the teaching and to the exhortation. So this is from the Lord. This is a grace from God that we get to gather together on the Lord's Day and then week after week, we get to meditate on His Word together. And so right now we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and I want to ask you to um, maybe to examine your heart, examine yourself as to how you are hearing week after week the expository preaching of God's Word. How are you hearing it? And there's bad examples in God's Word, like in Ezekiel, you can go read Ezekiel 33, and you've got these people that love to gather up and, and hear Ezekiel preach and hear him teach. They love that. But God said, look, they're just, they're just hearing you like sweet, beautiful songs, but they're not doing anything that you say. And then there's good examples, like in Acts 17, where you have the Bereans. It says that the Bereans heard, they received Paul's word preaching with all readiness. And then they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were true. And I want to encourage you just to consider that. Like we're in the book of Matthew together, week after week studying. How are you making the most out of that? How are you preparing your heart to hear these words and to and to like the Bree and search the scriptures daily to see if what we're saying here is true so it becomes established and you own it for yourself? How are you being a good listener to the expository preaching of God's word? And I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to do that. So let's pray now that the Lord would help us. And let's read our passage in Matthew chapter three. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time, and again, that we get to worship you, to gaze on your word, and through your word, gaze upon Christ. Thank you, Lord, for letting us do this again. It's such a privilege. God, I pray that you would please help us. Give us ears to hear. Help us to lean in and listen to your words. Let your word be to us like like this hidden treasure, Lord, that we search and find out. You said, Lord, that if we search for you, we search your word like hidden treasure, that you would grant us wisdom, that you would open our eyes to see. So, God, we're asking for that right now. As we meditate on these truths, Lord, open our eyes to see. Show us Christ. Make us faithful servants. Give us hearts to obey. Make us doers of your word and not hearers only. God, we need you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're about to read Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. Can everybody hear me? Back, back corner can hear me? Well, thumbs up this way. Okay. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. Let it, be, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. 
Let's talk about the plain sense of what's here. So let's consider the context and the plain sense of what's in this passage. So do you remember the context of this passage? You've got multitudes of people are flocking out into the wilderness to listen to John preach. To be baptized by this wild man, John. Just multitudes and multitudes coming from all over to confess their sin, to repent, and be baptized by John. So can you imagine the scene? Can, can you kind of put yourself there? Think about the location. So he's, he's out in the wilderness somewhere. He's at the River Jordan. People are traveling from all over the place. I mean, it says Jesus traveled uh, from a certain place in Galilee here, meaning he's, he's probably going about 60 miles. So you're talking about uh, long journeys on foot to go hear this man preach, repent, and be baptized and come under his ministry. Now, why are the masses coming out? Not because this man is charismatic, not because he just has so much charisma that he's, a, he's an attractive figure. We know that from the passages before. It's not, they're not coming out because he's preaching a feel-good message for sure. We know that from reading the passage before. He's not preaching a feel-good message. That's not why they're coming. This is a move of God, a move of repentance, a move of confession of sin, of brokenness, preparing the way for Jesus to come. And so these people flock out into the wilderness. Now it says in the passage before that they're confessing their sin. I mean, can you picture that for a moment? Just think about repentance. First uh, Corinthians 7 tells us that there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. This is, this is multitudes of people, and these are holy moments of godly sorrow, of, of weeping, of brokenness over their sin. They're confessing their sin, repenting, and being baptized. So you got John down in the river, you got baptizing people, you got multitudes of Onlookers sitting up and watching him and listening to what he's saying. Maybe you've got lines. Could you imagine possibly these lines of people lined up to be baptized by him, to confess their sins and be baptized by him? Maybe these long lines waiting to get to John. Can you put yourself there in that scene? And we're told in the passage before that John is the one that Isaiah prophesied about. That he's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way for Yahweh. And what we find out here is he's preparing the way for Yahweh incarnate, Jesus Christ. And suddenly Jesus appears on the scene in our passage here today. So in our passage, we've got Jesus, which we just read just a moment ago. Jesus, Yahweh incarnate. Travels a long distance to be baptized by John. John kind of repels him for a minute and says, no, 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 I don't think I should do this. Jesus insists. And so Jesus is baptized. And when he's baptized, the miraculous breaks out. The heavens are split apart. The Holy Spirit descends. And the Father audibly speaks from heaven. Let's dig into this passage verse by verse. We'll take it in four parts. We'll take it in four parts. Number one is right here, verse 13. In verse 13, we see Jesus begins his public ministry in humiliation. Verse 13, Jesus begins his public ministry in humiliation. Let's read it again. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So you imagine Jesus has been living in obscurity for 30 years now. Growing up in Nazareth, living out his perfect righteousness, but just before his family and his fellow Nazarenes. But now something's about to happen. What, what, think about what Joseph was told in private, in a private dream. He was told this, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What Mary was told privately, privately by an angel, she was told he will be called the son of the most high. He will take on the throne of his father, David. What was told the shepherds in a private field somewhere unto you this day is born in the city of Bethlehem, a savior who is Christ the Lord. 
What was told to those wise men in sort of a private revelation that where's the king? Where's the one that's to be born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. All this private stuff is about to go public at his baptism. He's stepping in to his public ministry. John, John the the Baptist, his forerunner, this herald of the king. It says that the king is coming. He's prepared the way. He's gathered up the the multitudes. He's gathered up the public. Jesus goes out to John with a purpose. Notice how it says it in verse 13. It doesn't say he's just going out there and just happens to be there. But he goes out to the Jordan, to the wilderness. Why? To be baptized by John. He's going there on purpose. To be baptized by John. By John, he's purpose, purposefully stepping into this public ministry. Jesus is publicly identified by John himself. When John, when John retreats for a moment, says, "No, no, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me." So he recognizes him as and identifies him as the Son of God incarnate. The Holy Spirit identifies him when he, in a visible form, descends upon him. The Father identifies him in public here as a voice from heaven, booming from that rip in the sky. And this begins three years of public ministry. His teachings, his miracles, Jesus living out this perfect righteousness. And afterward, his death and his resurrection where he dies for sinners and rises From the dead. This is the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Now, he begins his public ministry in a surprising way. He begins his public ministry in a countercultural way. He begins it with humiliation. Humiliation. Now, that's very countercultural, right? You go read uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45. You go read that passage and we see how countercultural this is. He said, Jesus says this. He teaches later on. He says, you know how it is among the Gentiles. You know how it is among the rulers of this world. That they lord it over those who lead. But he says, but it shouldn't be so among you. No, it shouldn't be so among you. Among you, whoever's going to be great, whoever's going to be first, whoever's going to lead and be out in public and be out front must become a slave of all. Public ministry through humiliation. He even gives himself as an example. He says, he says, this is what the Son of Man came from. The Son of Man didn't come to be served. He, he, he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus didn't come to get slaves. He came to be a slave and to give his life, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is humiliation. He enters his public Ministry through humiliation. Now, how is baptism? How is Jesus' baptism here? How is it a humiliation? How is this a humbling experience? Again, I want you to try to imagine the scene. Try to think about what's going on there. Who exactly is showing up? Who are these multitudes that are showing up to be baptized? Who are they? And there's a passage you can go back and read. You should jot it down. Matthew chapter 21 Verse 31 and 32. And Jesus tells us that the people that are showing up to the baptism and and accepting the baptism of John are tax collectors and prostitutes. He says, you Pharisees, y'all rejected it. But these tax collectors and prostitutes were baptized by John. So imagine these multitudes of the, the this is the dregs of society. You go read Luke chapter 3 and you see not only the tax collectors, but these, the tax collectors are saying, what must we do, John? But also you've got the soldiers, these pagan soldiers saying, what should we do, John? So who's being baptized? Who's in this experience of being baptized by John? Who's there? Prostitutes and pagans and tax collectors. These are the people. This, the, and what are they showing up doing? They're showing up to repent of their sin. They're confessing their sin. There's brokenness over sin. And get this. Here's the humiliating part. Jesus gets in line with them. The one that has no sin to confess gets in the confessor's line. 
Imagine Jesus stepping down. This is, this is humiliation of Christ. Stepping down into those filthy waters where sin's being washed away. And he steps down into those waters. He's identifying with sinners. He's associating with the wicked. These are the people that he's come to save. Now compare that to the Pharisees. John 1 tells us the Pharisees showed up. They were sent from Jerusalem to see what's going on with this guy. So the Pharisees, you can imagine them sitting off from a distance. Just wanting to hear what he's saying, hear what's going on, trying to find some heresy or something. But they don't want to be associated with this dregs of society. They don't want to be associated with these sinful people. Compare that to Jesus who steps right down there in the midst of them and gets in line to be baptized. I think all of us, when we think about leadership, we love, we love leaders that are willing to get their hands dirty, right? Like nobody likes a leader that just sits up in their ivory tower and has nothing to do with getting their hands dirty, hands dirty with the people. We love leaders that like to get their hands dirty with the people. This is on another level. This is Jesus entering into our filth so that we might be clean. Jesus entering into our filth so that we might be clean. Number two, you look at verse 14. We've got John's humility. The lion becomes a mouse. John's humility in verse 14. Let's read it. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now, what's John's problem here? Why is John trying to prevent him, Jesus, from being baptized? Now, everybody that's ever given any thought, anybody serious about the Lord that's given any thought to this moment in Jesus's life, they feel what John feels. This Jesus doesn't he's he's stepping into this baptism of repentance, but he doesn't need to repent. He's getting in this line of people confessing their sins, but he's got no sin to confess. So everybody's felt that. Why is Jesus being baptized? He doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need to confess his sin. He's the perfectly righteous one. Why is he being baptized? Now you imagine we all feel that, but John feels it more intensely than we do. Why? Because he's the one Jesus is saying baptize me to. He's the one expected to baptize Jesus. Essentially, Jesus becoming, in a sense, a disciple of John. And you imagine how you imagine how shocked, how shocked John feels right here. I, I should be I should be baptized by you, and 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 you're coming to me. John says. Earlier, he said, I'm not worthy to even to even carry your sandals. I'm not even worthy to tie your sandals. I'm not even worthy to be your slave. And you and you want me to baptize you. You want me to give you the sinner's baptism, the sinless one, the sinner's baptism. Now, this is a wonderful verse. If you ever want to study the sinlessness of Christ Jesus, this would be a wonderful, wonderful verse for you to dig into. Why is John reacting in this way? But let's come back to John's humility. Okay, come back to his humility. I want you to contrast the way John speaks to the crowds versus the way John speaks to Jesus here. It's an amazing contrast. How does John the Baptist speak to the crowds? How does John the Baptist speak to Jesus? Now, to the crowds, he's bold like a lion. Remember it from last week? The passage is right before here. He's got a voice like thunder, a mouth full of fire. He's preaching repent. He's preaching it with urgency. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Respond now. Respond quickly before it's too late. He's speaking with authority. Luke 3, he's got people asking him questions, tax collectors and the crowds and all these people. And he's not mincing words, not one bit. Bold in his language, even abrasive at times. As he looks at the Pharisees, he says, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. He's the lion in the wilderness. 
But then he speaks to Jesus. And notice the contrast. The lion becomes a mouse in the presence of Jesus. Do you want you? You can almost hear him stuttering. You want me to baptize you? I should be baptized by you and you're coming to me? The lion has become a mouse. The voice of thunder begins to quiver. The one who's boldly calling out other people's sin begins to confess his own. I need to be baptized by you. I need to enter into this sinner's baptism. I love this picture of humility. This is this is true humility. True humility is not the fear of men. It's not it's not quivering before men. True humility is not even being Mr. Nice Guy. True humility is rooted and grounded in trembling before King Jesus. Humility before Christ the King. Now you imagine if you had this humility before Christ, before the King, and you tremble and you quiver before Him, it affects the way you deal with other people. And sometimes you deal with other people with voices of, of thunder and conflict. And sometimes it's a quiet gentleness. But true humility is rooted in this, that you tremble before your God. You tremble before Christ and His Word. And that's my prayer for our church that we would be that we would that we as a church would imitate John in this that towards the world we would be towards the darkness of this world we would be bold as lions Proverbs 28:1 it says that the wicked flee when nobody's chasing but the righteous are bold as a lion I pray that we would be like John in that and yet full of humility in the presence of Christ before our king trembling before him I pray for our church that we would imitate this humility. But we still need to answer John's question, right? So the question that's driving John to say what he says in verse 14 is why? Why do I need to baptize you? Why should you be baptized? We need to answer that question. And Jesus answers it in verse 15. So let's go to number three. Verse 15. And what we see here is the reason for Jesus' baptism. The reason for Jesus' baptism in verse 15. Let's read it. It says, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now. Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So just think about the plain meaning of that. Why should I baptize you? He says, well, let it be so now. Let it be so now. It's temporary. But it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. This, he, he just tells him, John, this is the right thing to do. John, this is the righteous thing to do. This is the, John, this is the will of God. This is the will of my Father. And I always obey the will of my Father. This is the will of my Father, John. This is to fulfill Oh, righteous. One translation said it like this. Jesus' response was this. Let it be so for now, for this is the right way for us to fulfill all that is required of us. Okay? So fulfill all righteousness. Now, I would say most people don't seem satisfied with Jesus' explanation here. Most people seem like they're just not satisfied with the reason he gives. Now, why? Why, why do people tend to not be satisfied? But because he, he tells them, I should be baptized because it's the right, righteous thing to do. It's the will of my father. But he doesn't tell them why it's the will of his father or why it's the righteous thing to do. He doesn't answer that question here. And so people tend to be a little unsatisfied with us. So he tells us that it is God's will for him to be baptized, but he doesn't tell us why it's God's will for him to be baptized, which is interesting because there's no Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would be baptized. There's no Old Testament law that the Messiah would need to be baptized. But so, in, so Jesus here, he gives a broad answer. I need to be baptized because this is the fulfillment of all righteousness. It's God's will. It's what I should do. It's the right thing to do. But he doesn't necessarily answer the question of why. Now let's take a second just to quickly um, give some thought to that question of why is this the righteous thing to do? 
It's the Father's will, but why is it the Father's will? And then we'll come back to the broader answer that Jesus gives. I'll give you three quick reasons that this is the righteous thing for Jesus to do. So number one, Jesus' Jesus's baptism was righteous because it revealed him to Israel. It revealed him to Israel. Okay? Notice the word in verse 15 here, the word us. This is, this is fitting for us. John and Jesus, this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, if you go read, why is he baptizing? John chapter 1, verse 31. Let me read this first to you as quickly as I can get there. It says this. John says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. It's the Father's will because His baptism was to reveal the Messiah to Israel. Alright, number two. Jesus' Jesus' baptism was a righteous thing. It was righteous because He was identifying Himself with sinners. As we said just a moment ago, He was identifying Himself with sinners. He's in the confession line with nothing to confess. He's in the filthy waters, but He's already clean. And this is what Jesus came to do. We know this clearly from all the scriptures that Jesus, uh, 1 Timothy 1, 15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world not to condemn sinners, not to just give us a good example to live by, but to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. John 3, 17, Jesus says that. He says the Son of Man didn't come into the world to condemn the world, that the, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to save the world. He came to identify with sinners and eventually die for them so that they might be saved. And this baptism is an identification with sinners. Three, Jesus' baptism was righteous as an example for his people. It's a righteous thing as an example for his people. You imagine Jesus' people, Jesus' church would go on to be known as the baptized ones. These are the people that are baptized. Matthew 28, 19. Go make disciples, baptizing them. Baptize those disciples. All through the book of Acts, those that get saved are baptized. Romans chapter 6, literally it talks about Christians as the baptized ones. Those that have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Baptized into His death. And so here's, here's the captain of our salvation leading the way. In baptism. Leading the way in baptism. So these are some reasons. If you feel unsatisfied. And I I hope you won't. But these are some reasons that his baptism. Was a righteous thing. But let's come back to Jesus' broader statement. Remember he didn't give those reasons. Jesus gave a broader statement. Which is. Let it be so now. Let it be so now John. Baptize me now. Let this be so now. Thus it is Thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now I want you to notice that in that phrase here in verse 15, he does not just say, let's do it because it's just the right thing. He says, let's do it because this is part of the fulfillment of all righteousness. Not just this is the right thing, but this is part of my fulfillment of all, all righteousness. Jesus is being presented here as the fulfiller of, of all righteousness. Do you think about Jesus that way? Jesus the Savior. Jesus the uh, God incarnate. The powerful one. And Jesus the fulfiller of all righteousness. Jesus the fulfiller of all righteousness. He's the, the perfectly righteous one. The one that is always obedient to the Father. Negatively, he has no sin. He has never sinned. Positively, he has perfect righteousness. He's lived out all perfect righteousness. This is who, this is who Jesus is. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20. It says... There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Well, there is now. It is right here in this passage. There's a righteous man on earth who always does good, always does what's righteous, and has never sinned. Christ is the only one that fulfills this. Now, I think we tend to understate the importance of the life Jesus lived 
for our salvation. I think we tend to understate the, the, the importance of Jesus' perfect righteousness lived out for our salvation. We tend to understate that. The death that he died for our salvation is massively important, but so is the life that he lived. The righteous life that he lived. And this is the reason that when R.C. Sproul talks about this verse in verse 15, he makes a bold statement. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, the most important text, this is the most important text in the New Testament about the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. That he is the fulfiller of all righteousness. Now, Jesus is eternally righteous as the Son of God, always has been righteousness in and of Himself, and yet now the Son of God has taken on flesh, and He's not only God, but He's fully man, and as a man, He's living out this righteousness that no man has ever lived before. Can you imagine Adam failed, and everyone from Adam has failed to live this perfectly righteous life. Here comes the fulfiller of all righteousness. He's perfectly obedient to his father, even when it means humiliation. And you see this at the beginning and the end of Jesus' public ministry, right? At the very beginning, the humiliation of gathering in and getting in line with sinners and going down into those filthy waters, that humiliation of identifying with sinners. And at the end of his public ministry on this earth, when he goes to the cross, and Philippians 2.8 says he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross, the humiliating death of a cross hanging, bleeding and naked on that tree, humiliation as he dies for our sins. But he's obedient. He's obedient to the Father, even in humiliation. Now, why is Jesus' perfect righteousness lived out why is that so important for our salvation? Because we need that perfect righteousness imputed to us. We need that perfect righteousness credited to us. The forgiveness of sins saves you from hell. The forgiveness of sins wipes the record clean and now you have a clean slate. But you need more than a clean slate to enter into heaven. You need perfect righteousness. The perfect righteousness of Christ. Jesus not only had to die for our sin, but he had to live for our perfect righteousness. God, God in his word, he speaks about Jesus' obedience like one seamless garment of righteousness. It talks, it talks about it as a garment that you wear. One seamless garment of righteousness. The obedience of Jesus. Now, how is our righteousness spoken of in God's word? Isaiah 64, 6 says we're all like an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are like filthy garments. And so this is the beautiful gospel that Jesus swaps with us. That he takes my filthy garments that I've, that I've uh, accrued over the years, these filthy garments, and he takes them onto himself and he dies for them. He takes the punishment from my filthy garments and he swaps and he takes his perfect garments of righteousness and lays them onto those that believe in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, the sinless one, became sin for us, wearing our filthy garments, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We get to wear His righteousness and thus have a title to heaven. The life that He lived is very, very important. Number four, verse 16 and 17. Now we see Jesus' baptism, His actual baptism. You could call this the triune affirmation that Jesus is king. The triune affirmation that Jesus is king. Verse 16 and 17, look at it. And when Jesus was baptized, 
Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So again, just try to imagine the scene if you can try to imagine that scene. Jesus comes up out of the waters. It says that the heavens are ripped apart. Imagine the multitudes being startled in that moment as the heavens, the skies ripped apart. And visibly, it says the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, not as a dove, but like a dove. He descends upon him. Luke says he descends in bodily form. In other words, it was visible. Imagine people seeing the Spirit descend upon Jesus. And then it says this, this voice comes booming out of the rip in the sky. That's my beloved son. That's my beloved son. In whom I'm well pleased. In whom I delight. Imagine that voice from heaven. What did it sound like? Imagine, try to imagine that scene. So here we see the Trinity. We see our triune God. Now, brothers and sisters, have you ever meditated deeply on this? As you study through God's word, you're saying, I want to know who God is. Have you ever studied this and, and, and recognized the Trinity? You, you need to do that. And this would be a good passage to dig into to do that. Think about what you see here. All three persons of the Trinity here. We see God the Son and Jesus Christ here. We see the Holy Spirit descending from heaven here. We see the Father speaking from heaven here. We see all three persons. And you study God's word. And, and, and it's not that a third of God, a third of God, a third of God. It's fully God. God the Son, fully God. It's, it's God the Holy Spirit, fully God. It's the Father, fully God. And so there's three gods, right? No, you keep studying the word. And there's one God. Over and over again, one God, one God, one God. This is mind-blowing. One God, three persons. How do you fathom it? And yet we see it right here in this passage. And then it gets more, even more mind-blowing that one, if you can understand this wild sentence, one of the three persons of the one true God takes human nature onto His divine nature. It wasn't the Father, it wasn't the Spirit, the Son of God. God the Son takes human nature and now you've got Jesus here, fully God, fully man. It's mind-blowing. It's glorious. And all three persons of the one true God affirm that that man Christ Jesus is God the Son incarnate. He is the King that was promised. The Son, God the Son affirms it because He willingly goes to the baptism. The Holy Spirit affirms it because He descends upon Him. The Father confirms it because He speaks. That's my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He's being affirmed. This is the promised King. This is the promised king. Now let's talk about why the spirit descends on Jesus. Why does the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus here? Does, does Jesus need to receive the Holy Spirit in the same way sinners like me and you do? Was he ever separated from the Holy Spirit here? No, it's not. So, 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 so. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all one never lose that as the Son takes on flesh. Matthew 1.18 says that He's a child born of the Holy Spirit. So He doesn't need the Holy Spirit in the sense that we do. So what's going on here? The Spirit descending upon Jesus is the anointing of the true prophet, priest, and king. This is the anointing of the true prophet, priest, and king. We see it in Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, where, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and the Lord has anointed me to... And he goes on. You see, Jesus quotes that verse later on. He says, that's me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and He's anointed me. This is the anointing of the true prophet, priest, and king. Now let me tell you a little bit what I mean by that. If you think about... The way God has designed history, the way he designed the Old Testament. You've got these three offices in the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, all throughout your Old Testament. 
got these three offices. Now, if you understand these offices, the prophet is the one that that stands before God's people on behalf of God. He speaks on behalf of God, stands before God's people. A priest is one that stands before God on behalf of God's people to offer offer up sacrifices and atonement for sin. The kings were the one that stand before God's people to lead them and protect them. And every one of them, as you read through your Old Testament, every one of them had to be anointed by the Spirit to do this task. Think about the prophets. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he spoke. Or think about the king. This is the way it was with King David when he was anointed to be this king. And he cried out later on in Psalm 51, Oh God, take not your spirit from me. He's talking about that anointing to be king. Same thing with the priest. Had to be anointed. And so what we see here is Jesus, the fulfillment, the the fulfillment of prophet, priest and king being anointed by the Holy Spirit to do that work. Jesus is the prophet. He's the true prophet. He's the one that stands before God's people and speaks God's word. He's the human that stands before God's people, fully God, fully man. He's also the priest. He's the one that goes into the holy place and stands before God on our behalf, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood to be a sacrifice for sinners, an atonement for sin. He's the king, the one that stands before God's people and leads them and rules them and protects them. He's the eternal king. And this is his anointing. Now, let's close out. This passage by thinking about what the father said here. The father's affirmation. Verse 17, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, I love that picture. Can you imagine that? Everybody's going to John to be baptized and they've all got something to say. You know what they have to say? They're confessing their sins. They're confessing their sins. They're confessing their sins. They're all being baptized and they all have something to say. They're confessing their sins. And here steps up one who has nothing to confess. He's got nothing to say. And it's as if the father speaks up for him and he says, well, please, that's my son. Everyone else has sin to confess. But the father speaks up to the one that for the one that has nothing to confess and says, that is my son in whom I delight Jesus is the promised son of Psalm 2. Remember Psalm 2 from several weeks back? We meditated on that together. In Psalm 2, you got this world that's in turmoil and and rebellion against God. And God says, I'm going to set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He is this king. He says in that psalm, kiss the son. Kiss the son, bow down and kiss the son, lest he be angry and break out against you. His wrath be kindled a little. This is the son. This is my beloved son. He's the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And it says here, the father is pleased with him. In whom I am well pleased. Means he delights. The father delights in the son. And listen, the father has delighted in the son from all of eternity. This beautiful relationship between the Father, God the Father, and God the Son of delight in one another from all of eternity. And now the the Son of God has been made flesh. And as a man, God delights in His Son. He's well pleased in this one. Christ Jesus, the God-man. Now you think about how beautiful that relationship is of, of God the Father and Jesus the Son. And this relationship of well-pleased and delighting in him. And listen, here's what's beautiful. This is what we get to enter into when we're in Christ Jesus. You see, without Christ, we're by nature children of wrath. We are not well-pleasing to the Lord or worthy of being delighted in. But Christ comes and deals with our sins and dies for our sins, gives us his perfect garments of righteousness. And now now the Father can look at us and say, well-pleased. This is the one in whom I delight. Well-pleased. Now I want to close out... um, This is our passage. And I want to close out our time 
in the word right now with just a quick word on baptism, a quick thought on baptism. We've been talking about baptism the last couple of weeks in these passages. And here's something you have to notice from these passages and others that baptism is, think about baptism, it's very connected to Jesus and his ministry. Baptism is very connected to Jesus and his ministry. And it's given to us as something that is very important. Okay? Now, there's no baptism like this here in our Old Testament. There's no baptism like that. So if you want to learn about how baptism is connected to Jesus and his ministry, you have to begin with John's baptism. So you, you start with John's baptism to understand it. And there's a continuity between John's baptism and Christian baptism, which most many of you have experienced, Christian baptism. There's this continuity of both of them are baptisms for the repentant, right? So, so John is giving a baptism of repentance. What is Christian baptism? Acts chapter 2, verse 38. What mu- you know, he's saying, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized. Baptism for the repentant. Now, I want you to think for just a minute. Think about baptism being connected to Jesus and his work and how important it is. Think about this. Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, has a ministry of baptism to the repentant. Jesus himself in his earthly ministry, you read about it in John 4, 1 and other places, he has a ministry of baptism to the repentant. He doesn't baptism, but baptize him, but his disciples do. Christian baptism is presented to us as very important. This is part of our mission. Go therefore, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Go make disciples and baptize them. We see it all through the book of Acts, right? People being saved and being baptized again and again and again. This is very important. You see that, right? And just to, and just to you know, add on to that, Jesus himself in our passage is baptized. He's baptized here. There's a very important connection between Jesus and his work and baptism. Now, that being said, I want you to think about this. Some people have come to some really foolish conclusions about that, like baptismal regeneration. Like, your baptism is some work, some effort you put forward that saves you, right? Like, getting, getting wet, getting dunked in the water saves you. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. You study the word. Your baptism doesn't save you. You respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. And those are the ones that are saved. And they ought to be baptized according to God's word. So baptismal regeneration is foolish. But listen, there's another foolishness. And it's to minimize the importance of baptism. It's foolish to minimize the importance of baptism. It's no big deal. It's just a thing. It's just a symbol. Take it. Or leave it. But here's the problem. The scripture doesn't speak like that. Listen to the importance to put on baptism in Acts 2.38. Where these people have heard the gospel. They're convicted of their sin. They want to know what to do. They want to know how to respond. And Peter says to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, your baptism doesn't save you. It's foolishness. But this is the call to repent, to come to Christ. And those that do that get baptized. There's an importance placed there. What about Acts 22, verse 16? Where Ananias looks at Paul and his conversion time. And he says, he says, Paul, why do you wait? Rise up, Paul. Be baptized. Wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism is important. How do you know? Look at our passage today. Jesus is baptized. It's very important. And so quick application. Are you lost? If you're here today and you're lost, here's my my plea with you. Here's my call to you. Listen, repent. Repent. Come to Christ. Don't sit in your sin and go to hell. But repent. Come to Christ. Or like it says in Acts twenty two sixteen, Call on the name of the Lord and wash away your sins. Come to Him. Come to the one that entered into the filthy waters. Come to Him. Come to the one that was affirmed by the Holy Spirit. Whom the Father said, that's my son and whom I'm well pleased. Come to Him and be saved. And when you do, be baptized. 
It says here in Acts 2.38, be baptized. And if you're here today and you confess Christ, that He's your Savior, that He's your Lord, that you belong to Jesus, but you are right now rejecting baptism, I want to plead with you, don't minimize this thing. Don't minimize baptism. This is an obedience issue. This isn't just, you can figure out what you want to do. This is Jesus saying, repent. This is him. This is Peter saying, repent and be baptized. It's an obedience issue. This is a mark that sets you apart, that you belong to Christ. The mark of belonging to Jesus, you're a baptized one. This is a public display that I belong to him. I belong to Christ. Your king, the captain of your salvation, was baptized. Follow him. Follow him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for these, for these words, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would let your word go in our ears and deep down into our hearts, God, that we would be established in the truth. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We're amazed at your mercy. We're amazed, Lord, that you would enter into the filthy waters, God, that that you would identify with sinners like us. That you would die for sinners like us. We're amazed at your mercy. And we praise you, God, for that perfect righteousness that you clothe us with. So many in this room, Lord, you have clothed us with garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. And so we rejoice, Lord. We were unqualified, even disqualified to enter into the courts of your presence. But you've clothed us with your perfect righteousness and we praise you, Lord. Lord, I pray for any here today that don't know you, that are trusting in their own filthy garments of righteousness that they have earned. God, I pray that you turn them away from that sin, this this arrogant and prideful sin, and they put their trust in you, Lord Jesus, and you alone. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.